Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Lawrence Torcello. Larry is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Larry works primarily in social and political philosophy, ethics, and applied ethics, but his most current research is focused on the moral and political implications of climate change. In particular, Larry has been writing about what he calls climate change pseudo-skepticism and corporate misinformation campaigns with respect to climate change. This work is accompanied by other research that concerns the public responsibility of scientists and the place of scientific expertise in democratic discourse. Hi, Larry. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, So why don't we get right to it? Um, You know, Larry, we scheduled this interview a few weeks ago, um, but... uh, you know, perhaps fortuitously, maybe not. Yesterday, <laughs> there there emerged uh, from Harvard, uh, some some fellows at Harvard, um, a new article showing that uh, the Exxon Corporation uh, has, for decades, engaged in some pretty overt misinformation uh, regarding climate change. So, why don't we why don't we begin there? Um, can you tell us a little bit about this article and, and what you make of it? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, this is uh, this is a paper that was uh, published in the Journal of Experimental Research Letters by Naomi Oreskes and Joffrey Supran. Uh, Naomi Oreskes is a historian of science who's been tracking these campaigns of disinformation for quite some some time, and their article is uh, a follow up to some investigative journalism uh, from 2015 uh, put out by. Uh, the Los Angeles Times and Inside Climate News uh, that has been following the story of how over the course of uh, several decades, going back to uh, the 70s, actually, uh, the climate scientists employed by Exxon, Exxon Mobil now, but at the time Exxon, uh, were doing really cutting edge research into climate science. And they were in some ways ahead of the curve in terms of understanding what was happening in terms of human cause climate change, uh, the dangers associated with it, and what this meant for their business model, most importantly to the company. And uh, at the same time that Exxon was funding the scientific research, uh, they were also funding a PR campaign in the public to cast doubt upon the science of climate uh, climate change uh, in a way that really played up uncertainty and followed uh, as Oreskes uh, with her co-author um, Eric Conway in a previous book called Merchants of Doubt emphasized, uh, they followed the model of tobacco, uh, the tobacco industry in their attempt to disassociate themselves from science that connected uh, cigarette smoking to various cancers, especially lung cancer. Well, that's interesting. So, can you? What would you guess the motivations would be? And well, I mean, there are obvious <laughs> motivations, but why fund the science and you know um, mm-hmm. uh, collect all the data 
and then at the same time also um, fund, I guess, at, at considerable expense. You know, it can be, PR campaigns are not cheap. Why fund the uh, – why do both? Why not just fund mm-hmm. the PR campaign? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think the answer is that that's a, it's a smart company uh, in in many ways. Uh, they understand that you know their business strategy involves extracting uh, fossil fuels from the earth and converting that to energy usage, and uh, the science of of climate change is going to impact that. And they have to be. I think they they know that they have to be aware of what's going on because sooner or later reality is going to overcome any PR campaign. Uh, but at the same time, I think they they decided that it was a strategic investment to put off any transition to renewable energies as long as they could, that it was actually cheaper for them to fund a PR campaign than to actually change and overhaul their business model. I think there is a great deal of inertia and it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but there seems to have been been a a very cynical approach taken uh, at the corporate level. Is so is, is Exxon, I I would guess that Exxon's not the only, um, uh, culprit here. I mean, were other mm-hmm. um, uh, oil companies uh, doing similar? Uh, well, were engaging in similar yes. misinformation campaigns, but were they also funding the science? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Exxon is unique in in the range of in the sheer you know magnitude of uh, disinformation that they put out there. But other companies have done the same thing. Shell, uh, for instance, uh, a lot of what these companies have done. It, in addition to uh, writing, you know, or paying for op-eds to go into places like the New York Times uh, and, and various mainstream uh, media outlets, uh, they also funded various conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation or Heritage Institute, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the Heartland Institute, who famously uh, put up a series of billboards comparing uh, climate scientists to the Unabomber, um, right. things of that nature, uh, and. Uh, created really a a shadow sort of culture of disinformation where climate uh, disinformers have their own faux scientific conferences every year. Wow. Um, So let's talk a little bit about some of the um, what we might think of as uh, the sort of uh, public or political epistemological sort of uh, Mm -hmm. uh, elements to this, because I take it that one of the one of the issues that, uh, that that we confront in dealing with um, sort of uh, large-scale public misinformation campaigns, uh, which you've already touched on, and I know that your work uh, addresses quite a bit, um, and is all is signaled in the title of the book you just mentioned, is that the misinformers, their aim is really just to create uncertainty or doubt or a kind of hesitation in the public mind. Uh, that runs contrary to the scientific evidence. It's not as if the disinformer has to disprove uh, uh, the the climate science. They just have to create enough, you know, they're they're like almost like trial lawyers. They just have to create Mm -hmm. enough doubt. Um, So there's a kind of asymmetry then. Is that, is that right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Their strategy is very straightforwardly to, uh, play up doubt, create doubt in the public sphere uh, so that they could um, push their own agenda. And the idea is that when you're playing up doubt, there's sort of a faux uh, reasonableness. Uh, we're just being the skeptics. We're just you know, doing our, dil- our due diligence. We're asking important questions. Uh, 
in a way that really, really, I think, misrepresents what goes on in actual science when science is working well, when the process is working the way it ought to, uh, in a way that confuses the public in, to the degree that it's not just a matter of misunderstanding the science, but I think there are deeper epistemological problems uh, with how uh, the common citizen understands uh, the process of gathering evidence and uh, weighing expert opinions and understanding the meaning of scientific consensus when when consensus exists does that get at your question or yeah, yeah. am i missing something no 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 that's that that's that's great so let me let me so there are two things in 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 what you've just said that i think are, are worth um worth picking up on so one is that uh um the disinformation campaigns do have a um uh, do draw upon a uh, a sense of what, what we as philosophers call reasonableness, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the 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 argument is is never just straightforwardly science doesn't know what it's doing, or scientists don't know what they're talking about. It's always the there's disagreement in the scientific community, which does draw on a, a kind of reasonable um, norm of um looking to the science to uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh to, to to help us think through uh complicated issues of public policy that depend on science um mm-hmm. but at the same time and this is where i wanted you to, to to pick up on uh at the same time you know the the public uh doesn't always understand how science works mm-hmm. <laughs> and um isn't uh as you were saying isn't always um sensitive to nuanced questions about uh when the mere existence of some counter consideration actually counts as countervailing evidence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how those campaigns work and play on the sort of the, the dual, the norm of sort of deferring to the scientific community and the, the overall uh, or pervasive, we might say, sort of lack of nuance in the public's understanding of how science works? Yeah, good. So one of the things I try to identify with the notion of pseudo-skepticism, um, by the way, the word itself comes from a sociologist in the 70s, uh, Marcello Truzzi, who, who coined the phrase uh, uh, to use against those he, he thought were dogmatically skeptical um, with regard to perhaps marginal claims uh, of supernatural or something like that. Uh, he was associated with the Center for Inquiry originally. And um, while I use it related relatedly, I, I go beyond it because I think if you leave it just there, pseudo-skepticism could be used as a bludgeon against anyone you think is questioning something that you want to take seriously. Um, but by tying it to a scientific consensus, the idea that science operates with uh, at least, I think most people who understand uh, the basic epistemology of science would agree that there's an attempt, an honest attempt at methodological skepticism applied to uncovering a better or clearer understanding of the natural world. So that when one doubts that sort of inherently skeptical process uh, of the modern scientific process, uh, one is using skepticism or trying to use the uh, epistemological good reputation, we'll say, of skepticism uh, to challenge science itself. Uh, So I associate that with pseudo-skepticism. So the idea would be that there's something akin to pseudoscience going on here, where you attempt to 
use or take up the mantle of authority from science and use it against uh, science. Uh, you, you paint yourself as the reasonable one. You're representing the reasonable party. And how that works with climate pseudo-skepticism is, as we talked about a moment ago, the idea of playing up doubt and uncertainty. Um, but also at the same time, as one is attempting to, to appear to be the reasonable one in the debate, uh, they're also casting aspersions against climate scientists by saying uh, they're unreasonable, they're becoming dogmatic, even religious in their zeal to have uh, you know, one set of, of acceptable answers to the problems we're seeing around the issue of climate climate change. So there's sort of a two-tiered strategy. One, play up uncertainty to make it appear as if they're asking more reasonable questions than they are, and also to play up the degree to which climate scientists don't know what's going on, which they attempt to do, and at the same time attacking climate scientists as being the dogmatic ones who have been politicized now and who are no longer in the community of reasonable people. So there's an ad hominem that's adopted into their strategy as well. Right, and so it is a, good, I'm glad that you brought that out. I hadn't thought through this before. It is a, it is a rather complex strategy, as I suppose it would have to be, and its complexity, I think, um, has to be part of the explanation of um, how successful it is, <laughs> yeah. I'm sad to say. Um, because you're right, that it is a kind of, um, it's kind of a, it, it looks like a wedge strategy, right? It's It starts with the, let's mm -hmm. look at all of the evidence and let's hear what all of the scientists are saying. And there are, you know, there's not consensus among the scientists because there are these scientists mm -hmm. who think that, you know, um, climate change isn't caused by humans or the climate isn't really changing. But then eventually, you're right, it becomes a, a much more uh, thoroughgoing uh, and, and, and much more um, ad hominem sort of style mm -hmm. criticism in that says that uh, not only is there, you know, lack of consensus among the scientific community, but um, mm -hmm. the overwhelming majority of the scientific community, those who hold that there is human-caused climate change, right, they're the ones who are being dishonest or not the real scientists or are bought or have been politicized or have been duped in some way. Is that right? Uh, exactly right. And it almost it has to be that way, given the reality that the scientific consensus around human-caused climate change is so strong at this point that between 97 and 99% of actual researching climate scientists say that human beings are causing all of the warming since the 1950s. And uh, to attack that, especially as somebody who lacks scientific uh, expertise in, in climate science, uh, you, you almost are reduced to conspiracy thinking. And there's, there's a significant overlap yeah. in, in accusations of uh, – uh, well, and this is where there's, I think, an analogy – with pseudoscience, the idea that mainstream science is trying to suppress something, that they're in the pocket of big renewable or something <laughs> like that, um, and that you know the world community of scientists are all you know in it together for their own profit to you know as Senator Inhofe writes in his in his book of a few years ago to perpetuate the greatest hoax on earth. Um, so it. This is the guy yeah. who brought the snowball, am I right? Sure, right, exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> the, earth, the earth isn't warming because I've got snow in my hand. <laughs> exactly. And Hugh receives quite a, a, a bit uh, in terms of campaign uh, money from fossil fuel industries. Right. Uh, so what, what do you think? So in this case, though, it, 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 I, was, I was about to say, what do you think is the right sort of strategy for yeah. – combating the public's susceptibility to this, what we've now sort of described uh, as a wedge strategy. You know, it starts off seeming, you know, perfectly sensible to say things like, look at all the evidence. Not everybody agrees. Some people look into this and investigate it and come up with a different kind of conclusion. We've got to consider the strength of, you know, the, 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 the dissenting voices. I mean, that all seems like good scientific practice. But then... That's just the, 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 the reasonable sounding thin edge, thin edge of the wedge that then gets turned into, I think you're right, ultimately a conspiratorial account of um, a conspiratorial uh, 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 story that, that, that is wildly implausible. Like all of the world scientists are somehow engaged in, ho in a hoax. But um, what's, what's the right way, do you think, to, um, uh, to address this and to, to, to address some of the public's vulnerabilities to this kind of strategy? Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. And there's a lot of debate among social scientists, climate scientists, and, and people like me who are interested in this topic as to how the best, uh, how best to approach this. Um, there's a lot of evidence, uh, psychological evidence that emphasizing that there actually is a consensus, uh, scientific consensus, uh, cuts through some of the resistance and even among very conservative people. So I, I, I think that that's an important part of the strategy, just getting information out there to the public. And then there's another camp, and sometimes these two camps are posed against each other uh, in, in the literature uh, that says, well, really what's happening is, uh, and this is called the cultural cognition model, the idea is that people are identifying, and there's obviously some truth to this as well, people are identifying so much with uh, the political ideology uh, that associates itself with climate skepticism or quote-unquote skepticism, pseudo-skepticism, uh, that it's just a matter of knowing that you know, only liberals believe in, in climate science and I'm a conservative, so therefore I can't, I can't do this. And any attempt to cut through the resistance uh, makes them even more polarized. So there's a danger of this backfire effect when you start to give people information about climate science uh, that maybe they get even more rigid in their beliefs because they feel personally attacked because they vested so much uh, of their own identity into doubting science and thinking of climate scientists as these evil, godless liberal types. Right. So, you know, this is a pattern that, you know, throughout this series and in a lot of my own sort of thinking about um, the issues that uh, the Why We Argue uh, podcast is, is is aimed at. So so much of um, political phenomena, so much of how our public discourse is structured, especially in the cases where it's going badly, so much of the, 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 the pathology um, has its root in models of the, of a of public debate where um, you know one side uh, or maybe both sides have a um, 
a, 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 an image of their opponents that they've gotten from their own side, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is, 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 is completely a caricature, right? That some of that, I I take it that you're right. And that on this model you're describing, it's the, 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 the resistance to the idea of, you know, human caused climate change has more to do with not wanting to be on the same side of an issue with a person of that kind, Mm-hmm. Where that kind is a depiction of the liberal as a socially mm-hmm. undesirable, you know, opposed to tradition or whatever. Yeah. That picture of the liberal is just a portrait provided for citizens, conservative citizens, by conservatives, right? It's almost yes. like they, they don't they don't get their picture of the opposition from anybody who actually embraces the opposing view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it becomes an echo chamber. And of course, we know that social media plays into this. This has come up over and over on the course of your conversations with others. Uh, it's a hard problem. Um, yeah, and I suppose that if if this if the second model that you were describing is correct, then it looks as if galvanizing uh, uh, the the climate scientists and uh, helping or creating new ways in which the the, the scientific community can t- take up a, a public role or communicate directly with the public, that will not only not be effective, it might even be counterproductive, right? Yes, that's a fear. I happen to think that both of those models are correct and that they could be brought together and there's a bit of a false dichotomy that um, gets played out. And the reason I think that is because there's there's a lot of uh, – there seems to be a lot of evidence uh, that, well, there's what's called the consensus gap that maybe I – think, I think we've made some progress on it. Maybe it's around 60, 65 percent right now, maybe even up to 70 percent of the public that understands that there actually is a scientific consensus that human beings are causing climate change as opposed to the 97 percent in the scientific community mm. uh, that will tell you that the research bears this out, and that's within the margin of error. So it's it's actually tw- 97% as a conservative estimate of how scientists actually feel about this. But there's a big gap between people in the public knowing that and the reality in the scientific community. Um, and I think there's there's reason to believe that it's important for people to be given that information, that it's easier for people to uh, fall victim to disinformation campaigns when they really do believe, well, scientists don't know what's going on. They're debating this. So so why shouldn't we consider all of the reasons there is to doubt what they're saying? And of course you should. I mean, that's part of being a good thinker is, is doubting, but also knowing when you've gone beyond reasonable doubt. Right. And so I think that the more that it's out there in the public that climate change is something that's real, that scientists agree that it's happening, I think that's very useful. And I also think that the reason um, sometimes we are are more easily persuaded by people in our own in-group is because – you know, we care about what's familiar to us and what's familiar to us uh, in, in some cases happens to be, you know, Uncle Ed or whoever it is at the Thanksgiving table who's, you know, been listening to Rush Limbaugh and is spouting all of this nonsense. Um, and Uncle Ed is is driven by what seems comfortable and familiar to, to him as well, which happens to be those radio broadcasters. Right. Uh, so I, I think what we need to do is make climate science more familiar uh, so that the, it just becomes part of the public 
sphere, like common knowledge that, yeah, no, climate science is actually happening. Scientists actually believe this. And I think the more that we hear something, the more familiar it is, the less threatening it is to us. And eventually, even the, I mean, this is a principle in psychology called the familiarity effect. And I would connect it with informal fallacies and informal logic, the idea of an argument ad nauseum, right? right? This argument from repetition, they work, but why do they work? Right. They work because the more you hear something repeated, the more familiar it, it, it becomes for you, the easier it is to to accept that, un, you know, uncritically. Right. And it becomes part of, you know, it, it figures into availability heuristics and all the rest where you're just like, oh, I've heard this so many times. It's just an easily accessible thought for me now. And that's in some cases in the psychology, that's all it takes. Right. Exactly. It's just that you can have, you can access the thought easily. <laughs> exactly. And this is where the disinformation campaign has been so successful. They've made people who who are are thoughtful and want to have clear uh, public uh, conversations and debates, very careful about even mentioning climate change because the assumption is that that's going to put everyone's hackles up. And I think that's exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. I think we should uh, be talking about it more so that it, it's not so scary. It becomes more familiar. And I would make an analogy with same-sex marriage, which not so long ago was really divisive politically. I mean, it still is. But now I think there's been some progress where uh, people who who were staunch opponents to same-sex marriage at one time have come around perhaps because uh, they become more familiar with family members or friends who have come out. And I, I think the familiarity is really important. And I think we can't be afraid of having consistent, clear conversations, which I think has always been, you know, part of the status quo and the goal of good philosophy and good philosophical discourse. Right. Well, I agree with you there. Of course, you've you've been very, Larry. You've been very generous with your time. Um, can I can I just ask? I, this might be more uh, require more uh, of an of an answer than than we've got time for. But <laughs> I just wanted to to raise it because um, it, it it is interesting to me that a lot of the discussion about um, climate change and climate change denial and what we're we, we, what we're calling now pseudo skepticism, um, even the public sort of discussion of this. Um, seems very uh, infrequently, to, to my mm -hmm. surprise, I guess, to bring in sort of moral questions about putting future generations at risk. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, so I, I wonder, um, uh, this this is a, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of moral duties to future generations is something that, that, that you take quite seriously. Um, so why why is that not a, a bigger part of this, of this discussion? Because I can imagine somebody yeah. saying, look, even granted, let's just grant for the sake of argument that the scientific community is not of one mind about whether there is climate change or whether it's being caused by humans. Let's say there's a debate worth having there. Let's just mm -hmm. stipulate that. Couldn't somebody still say, but wait, you know, isn't it just more prudent to, to proceed on the assumption that human beings, that the human race ought to change its consumption behaviors so that we can do what mm -hmm. we can. If there is a risk, we minimize it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people will point that out, that uncertainty isn't on the on the side of inaction. That and the more uncertain something is, the the, the more good risk, you know, assessment uh, would have you actually take action as a precautionary. Um, but yeah, I think I think we, we have left morality out of this 
conversation, this public conversation, uh, far too much. And a, a lot of the people on the side of inaction on climate change, uh, you know, climate denialism seems to move back and forth between just denying it, you know, wholesale to saying, well, it's happening, but human beings aren't to aren't, you know, to blame, to saying, well, okay, it's happening, but we can't do anything about it, to saying if we do do something about it, we're going to relegate a large part of the world to never developing, and isn't that selfish? So they even attempt to steal the moral high ground here by saying that it's in everybody's moral interest to go full steam ahead and and exploiting you know fossil fuel resources which of course isn't the case because physics has something to say about this and we we have far too many reserves oil reserves now than we could literally burn safely um and and of course uh, the people who are most vulnerable to climate change in the short term are the very people who are least responsible for it Right. Um, those who are in destitute poverty and absolute poverty around the globe, living in low-lying coastal regions, those who are in Bangladesh, those who are on islands in South Pacific who are going to become climate refugees at some point. Some of them are already beginning to. And, yeah, I think, you know, we, we have we have neglected uh, to to speak confidently perhaps we're, we're, we're unsure of ourselves when it comes to morality in the public sphere uh, but we've neglected to point out that there are some real clear moral dimensions that i think are beyond reasonable debate when we talk about the people who are immediately vulnerable to this um, i think there's a real onus on those in the developed world to help those in the developing world adapt to this uh, threat of climate change. Um, so, and, and also I think people are moved, morally speaking. I think I've noticed that those uh, who want to attack the science, attack the science, but even though I just mentioned they do attempt to steal the high ground, the ethical high ground in some, some instances, for the most part, they think it's easier, it seems, to attack the science than it would be to attack the ethical mandate we have to act on climate change if it's actually happening. We're in some sense moved by morality, and I think we see this with the recent sad events that have unfolded in, in this country around Charlottesville. Right. Um, the public outrage is, has been really great and encouraging, I think. And, you know, that's a sort of outrage that I think maybe has an impact if enough citizens stand up and voice their moral outrage. And I would like to see more people doing that with climate change. Right. I think that would be an important way to move forward on this issue. Well, uh, Larry Torcello, thank you so much uh, uh, for your time and for joining us uh, uh, for the podcast today. This, is, this has really been wonderful. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for uh, listening to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. Uh, you can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at um, ampersand, uh, that is at, at public humility, one word. Uh, thanks and uh, take care for now. Bye-bye.